It is Wednesday. It's July 6th. And we're joining us, uh, thanks for joining us here on Real Talk. That was a bit of a stumble there. That was like a, a bit of a Wednesday, 8.30 Mountain Time, midweek, mid-early morning stumble. We're excited to have you here with us. John Hicks, Ryan Jesperson, and Hi-o. a jam-packed show coming up today. We've got a bunch of emails printed off. We've got a lot of you chiming in on stories that we're talking about that we have covered, stories that we will be covering, including a conversation with Dr. Eli uh, Sopo. In just a moment, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Dr. Sopo has been taking a look. He's a, a professor of change management and leadership. He's had more than two decades of experience on and off taking a look at the RCMP with regards to, to managing change of Canada's national police force. People are talking about that in the context of of whether or not there was political interference, was there operational breakdown in April of 2020 when a gunman went on a shooting spree in Nova Scotia. You remember this. It's one of the most appalling crime sprees in Canadian history. Claimed the lives of 22 people, three others injured before the gunman was shot and killed by RCMP officers in Enfield in Nova Scotia. We're going to take a look at that in just a little bit. We have a mom joining us, a real talker who reached out following our conversation uh, a little bit earlier this week with Dr. Uh, pardon me, with Sergeant Kerry Sheem of the RCMP. John, this one has prompted a lot of conversation among mm-hmm. real talkers. The online safety angle, uh, internet child exploitation. Anna Savage is going to join us in about 20 minutes time to tell her family's story. I don't know it all yet. I'm going to be learning most of it along with you. Uh, A chilling story, really, of how her family discovered that one of their three daughters was being targeted by somebody online who was not who they were portraying themselves to be. What were the red flags? How did Anna discover what was going on and what's been the fallout for her family? Want that conversation to continue. And we do have some messages from you into talk at ryanjesperson.com. And Dr. Lisa Young coming up, a political science professor out of the University of Calgary. She's been writing about this so-called glass cliff that women in politics can face. Looking forward to that conversation with Dr. Young, and we'll probably ask her, I'll ask her if she has a take on Patrick Brown, the Brampton mayor, being disqualified. This news just uh, sort of like mid-evening last night, late last night, the news that the, the Brampton mayor has been disqualified. Uh, from seeking the leadership of the Federal Conservative Party of Canada. Uh, They're saying uh, this statement uh, from the decision makers that there have been uh, allegations of serious wrongdoing within the finances of his campaign. Mm -hmm. And everybody's speculating about what that may mean, whether or not somebody was was picking up the salary of one of the team members or some money was being shuffled around. Who knows? Some people are saying, well, it's a a dirty campaign that the Browns team was running. And other people are saying Browns being done dirty. Uh, that, 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 you know, he's he's sort of being thrown under the bus here and it's not the first time for Patrick Brown and, yeah. and everybody's got an opinion on this one. So uh, we'll see what Dr. Lisa Young has to say about that. If anything, we'll see what you have to say about that, if anything. And of course, we're going to take ourselves out to Jasper today as well <sighs> as part of my Jasper memories presented by Tourism Jasper. <laughs> our lead off sponsor today, our presenting sponsor is the team at Bitcoin. Well, they want us to remind you that it's never been easier to buy Bitcoin via your online banking. It takes like two minutes to set up if this is your thing. If you're interested in learning more about it, if you know you want to buy Bitcoin, if that's something that that maybe is on your radar and you want to do it easily and safely and as quickly as possible, you go to BitcoinWell.com. You can learn more about this after that first purchase, after setting it up for two minutes. Uh, future purchases could be done directly from your banking app. It's the ultimate one-touch Bitcoin buying experience. I'm not saying buy it. I'm not saying sell it. I'm not saying don't buy it. I'm saying if you have questions about it, I recommend you talk to the team at Bitcoin Well. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. 
Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Of course, you know you can hit us up using our official hashtag. That's Real Talk RJ uh, through the day. We get messages from those of you that will be listening to this show a little bit later in the afternoon into the evening. It's great for us to know what's resonating with you. And, of course, our email inbox open 24 hours a day. Don't forget the Real Talk email of the month means that somebody gets one of our official Real Talk studio mugs shipped to them for free, of course, one Real Talker every month. So keep those thoughts coming in. Well, this is a story that's been difficult uh, for Canadians to wrap their minds around myself included you remember starting on april 18th of uh, 2020 uh, more than two years ago now a man committed multiple shootings set a number of different fires at 16 different locations in eastern canada in nova scotia as mentioned 22 people lost their lives three others were injured before that gunman was shot and killed by rcmp members in enfield this is a story that of course has the nation wondering what went wrong what could have been done better what operating procedures should have been in place for members of the public as an example to be better notified about this you remember the gunman was driving what looked to be almost an exact replica of an rcmp cruiser and obviously that had big implications uh in the public safety angle of this in the immediate policing angle of this and then of course the questions that people have had after the fact it's meant some uncomfortable situations between canada's public safety minister bill blair and the commissioner of the rcmp brenda Lockie. Our next guest has been keeping an eye on this, not just since the Nova Scotia shootings, but for more than 20 years. Dr. Eli Sopo, a professor of change management and leadership at the University of Canada West in Vancouver, was division director of research in the operations strategy branch of the B.C. RCMP headquarters. He also spent two years as National Research Director with the RCMP National Change Management Project. He's written about this at uh, theconversation.com. Alleged political interference in the Nova Scotia mass shootings means the RCMP must be restructured. Dr. Eli Sopo joining us live this morning on Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Well, thanks, Ryan. You have a great show. Appreciate that. Now, you, you've had experience, as mentioned, before we get into this specific study, this specific tragedy, you've been taking a look at the structure of the RCMP and essentially what you think needs to change for, for more than 20 years. How did you first start taking a look at this? What was the inroad? Well, I tell you, it's, it's not much of a surprise. People have been looking at the RCMP for... Uh, well, almost from the day it started over 100 years ago. Uh, this seems to be the federal government was never really clear exactly what this uh, wonderful police service actually was supposed to do. I mean, way back in 1922, there was talk in Ottawa, I don't know, maybe it should join the military, maybe it should be amalgamated. Uh, oh, well, maybe it should be downsized completely and be something completely different. And that kind of conversation has continued. It's it's the weirdest combination of uh, bureaucratic factors anywhere in the world for a police service. Um, because what you have is really the RCMP nationally, provincially, municipally, internationally, all in one organization. And it looks like one of those Escher sketches, if you've ever seen them, or where walkways are going in all different directions and nobody could figure out where things are going. And so it's very difficult to, to uh, really administer something like that. But the big, the big issue really is what's called culture, and that is how people feel about an organization, what's right, what's wrong, that kind of thing. Well, what you have is a national police service, a very important one, run like some junior ministry of the federal government, where the commissioner reports to a deputy, the deputy reports to cabinet, and on we go. 
And so it's really run like a federal government department. And well, we kind of know what those could look like um, because that's a different culture in itself. The federal government, as we know, is a little bit different. Their culture is careful, slow, take it easy. It's check the boxes. Let's have multiple decision making. A policing culture, wherever you might be, is one of quick action, response, protecting the public. We don't have time to make a lot of, uh, you know, three, six, eight month decisions on something that's happening right now in your face. Do we also have to take a look at who's accountable to whom and how that accountability is measured? Well, that is exactly right. And then what has been suggested when I was uh, working in Ottawa for two years on the the national change management uh, project to try to get the thing to change. One of the suggestions that came up a lot and uh, is that it, the RCMP should not be reporting to a cabinet minister, but it should be reporting to parliament, much like the auditor general and a few other departments do. Move it away from the political uh, oversight and directly to the oversight of, of parliament. And that, that was rejected. What did we learn specifically, or, or let me ask you this, in, in looking back on this tragedy uh, just over two years ago in Nova Scotia that claimed an unimaginable number of lives uh, in, in a circumstance that people, I think, still to this day have a hard time wrapping their mind around. I mean, uh, someone who was a, a business owner, this guy was, for all intents and purposes, he was a healthcare provider uh, that had compiled this compiled this, this, this cache of weapons and designed uh, and maintained what it was essentially an RCMP cruiser, a replica cruiser, and and went around on this crime spree where you you can imagine some people uh, that knew or that had some general idea of what was going on would have welcomed the arrival of this person with open arms, believing that it was law enforcement coming on scene. I've I've cooked these situations up in my mind a number of times. I can't even imagine what people experienced. They're a huge part of this in the aftermath uh, were complaints that people had, fury that people still feel about the lack of information that was shared with the public. And the more that we've learned about the RCMP and the checks and balances and information officers suggesting that they were trying to avoid so-called negative or bad news media, withholding information, a lack of standard operating procedures. I mean, where do you start when you evaluate what specifically went wrong and who's accountable with regards to this Nova Scotia mass shooting? Well, Nova Scotia, I mean, that is the nightmare of all nightmares. Uh, basically, what you have is we are hunting a criminal that looks exactly like us. <laughs> we don't know what they look like in terms of exactly who they are. I mean, it's just, just the most incredible thing. Uh, but compounding that then was, of course, the whole chain of command on what we should do and what kind of communications, when they should be issued and, and when not. The inquiry was already revealing a lot of the stuff about uh Ottawa headquarters having a, let's say, a say in what kind of communications would go out and when and that kind of thing. Uh, And then we had the commissioner that's alleged saying, well, listen, you can't say this and you can't say that. And could you imagine the confusion and chaos that that could could find? I've experienced that myself Uh, many years ago during the 9-11 disasters and terrorism attacks here in British Columbia at headquarters. We had to shut down the airport. Of course we did. And we sent out the the emergency response team. Roads are closed. Everything's shut down. People are wondering what the heck's going on. Ottawa said, hey, don't send out any news release. Don't tell the public anything what's going on yet until we have an approval stage for your news conference, for your news conference and your content. Our commanding officer, good for her, said, the heck with that. 
heck with that. We are sending out information to the public about why we've shut down their airport, for goodness sakes. And good for her for doing that. Uh, so we've seen this a lot. I referenced, uh, Doctor, your your piece at theconversation.com, and you've written in a number of uh, submissions for them, obviously. But this one uh, that was published just a short time ago, on the 23rd of June, uh, you argue right out of the gates here, shortly after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, you say you saw RCMP leadership both at its best and at its worst. Now, you teed that up for us. What was particularly remarkable about the RCMP in that moment or during that period of time and and what left room for improvement? What was its worst? Well, really, I mean, if you look at the members of the RCMP, the the on the street, boots on the ground, the women and men who do that, they do an amazing job. They are incredibly, incredibly dedicated people who work their butts off. That is the best of the RCMP that I've always seen for, for over 20 years. The worst is the bureaucratic decision-making, the time it takes to make a decision and multiple levels of approval for this or that. And sometimes, and we'll find out from the commission, from the inquiry, do they have the right tools and equipment to do the job? And I think there's some questions being asked about that out in, uh, out, out in that horrible tragedy that occurred, um, because often they do not. I mean, I have been in meetings with, with a commission or with, a, uh, with our uh, head of RCMP in BC where a member has said, sir, please, I need some new boots. I've been waiting forever. They're falling apart. But Ottawa, I have to wait for the approval stage. And finally, to his credit, he says, oh, for God's sake, just go out to the, you know, the local store, buy a pair of boots that are the right kind. So it's the kind of equipment they have, the funding, the administration. It is impossible to run this organization in any kind of efficient manner as, a, as a, some kind of a junior ministry of government. So what do you see happening as a result? of? I mean, there's there's a lot of chatter about this now. And, and certainly people, I think, you know, civilians are trying to better understand. It's why we appreciate conversations and interviews like this, some of the dynamics that are at play, the changes that need to make. What was it in particular? I mean, it was it was it the number of casualties? Was it the high profile nature of, of this tragedy of this crime spree back in 2020 that you think has prompted this change? What ultimately comes of this? You know, I, I hate to say this, Ryan. Nothing will come from this, huh. if, if anything, uh, because we've had we've had this is a horrible tragedy, but we've had police officers killed in, in Alberta. We've had police officers killed all over the place. We found all kinds of things happen. It hits a peak. An inquiry is called the we've had a national inquiry into restructuring the RCMP. Nothing happens for, for a variety of reasons. There's no political appetite to let go of control from Ottawa. The provinces don't want to take over the RCMP completely as a separate thing like, like Quebec or Ontario. And so along we go. And what happens, unfortunately, and I, I see this all the time today from, from members that I know, it affects their morale, their job satisfaction, and really it really eats away at their heart of even being a police officer anymore. Uh, these accusations of political interference with the RCMP, this isn't the first time. I mean, it, it's people are talking about now about public safety minister Bill Blair and the dynamic with Commissioner Lockie, et cetera. But has this been a long standing? Like, are we talking decades, doctor? <laughs> we're we're talking from the very first day where they had what was called the March West uh, for the RCMP to count West. And you know what? The first thing they discovered, hey, we don't have enough horses or equipment. And by the way, it's kind of cold out here. So how about, you know, some some equipment for, for the cold? Weren't getting it. Delays, delays, delays. And then in 1959, in 1959, in the Maritimes, in, uh, in, in, in Newfoundland, there was a horrible labor strike and a police officer was killed, an RCMP member. The commissioner at that time said, I want... I need more police officers here. This thing is out of control. 
uh, no, delay, delay, deny, delay. He quit. Quit. It was Leonard Nicholson at that time. The commissioner said, that's it. I'm walking. I'm out of here. This is the way you're going to treat me with your kind of political interference. He alleged, I quit. Oh, brave man. Good for him. We haven't seen that kind of thing in a long time. Wow. Uh, does this uh, you mentioned the morale uh, and I know that the, the RCMP throughout history have had a, a, a typically a pretty proud membership uh, members wearing that red surge. And it's always been sort of a high profile uh, policing career and people have been proud men and women to serve with the RCMP. What do you know about about the sense on the inside right now and, and how members are feeling in light of investigations like this and public inquiries and public conversations? What impact is it having on on retention? What what impact is it having on recruitment? Oh, yeah, those are really good questions, Ryan. And, you know, over the years, I've, I've looked at over 18,000 RCMP uh, members and civilians in terms of studies and research. Right now, today, what's happening is just worse and worse and worse. What's happening is that when you're not getting the funding and the support and the equipment that you need, your job satisfaction is high. Job satisfaction is I love what I do, but morale is what about the conditions that I do that job that I love in? Well, those conditions have been continually deteriorating to the point where the job satisfaction, I love wearing the red surge, is also starting to be eroded. Now, I think somebody should ask some questions about how many people in Regina are in those, uh, those troops are being uh, trained these days. The word on the street is not too many. Not too many people want to join the force because of the kind of things that they're seeing. There's an interesting conversation happening on and off in Alberta right now. Uh, Eli, I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, Alberta's premier for now, Jason Kenney, has, has mused about or has floated the idea of a provincial police force. Uh, it certainly wouldn't be the first of its kind in Canada. Ontario, obviously, is, is, is a prime example. The RCMP continue to police a number of uh, significantly populated Alberta communities, St. Albert, Alberta comes to mind uh, right now, just north of Edmonton. Uh, the RCMP down in Red Deer, Alberta, that's that's another example. Is is there an inherent advantage uh, to a community being policed by the RCMP? Do, do provinces with their own provincial police services uh, typically have a, a position of advantage in any way? What's your opinion? Uh, and I guess what I'm asking you is, in your informed opinion, do you think it makes sense for Alberta to make the switch? Well, my my personal opinion, I guess my learned opinion, is that yes, it does. And, and you know, nearby here, Vancouver, we have the city of Surrey, who now, uh, one, it is the largest RCMP detachment in Canada. They have moved, they're moving slowly into uh, their own police force at the city level. At the provincial level, what does it mean? It means you have more control. You don't have Ottawa, as somebody said, you know, we're 5,000 miles from Ottawa, but they're 50,000 million miles away from us. And terms mm. of their thinking you have greater control you have greater administrative powers there's a bunch of stuff not easy to do i know there's a study that has been done for alberta not easy to do but frankly at the end of the day the end of the day you have greater control and administrative structure of what the heck's happening in your province do you believe that th this is being managed sufficiently i mean are you, are you satisfied that that the proper oversight is happening, that the right questions are being asked, that the, the correct people are being called to the carpet? I mean, is this at least a, a move in the positive direction? Can Canadians feel comfortable about the conversations that are happening right now? Well, the inquiry is good, and they're asking good questions, and they're having good people with knowledge come 
to the forefront. Uh, RCMP officers in particular, uh, senior RCMP officers who a lot of experience. I'm, I'm looking forward to the day when they bring forward the commissioner of the RCMP and other very senior political people and ask them what's up, put their feet to the fire. And we'll see what comes out of that. You know, it won't wouldn't surprise me if eventually somebody's going to have to be tossed out, like the commissioner herself, who might have to resign. Who knows? But on the other hand, as you know how government operates, Ryan, it's delay, deny, deflect, and then nef- nothing ever gets done. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, Eli, it's been great to welcome you to the show. I'm looking forward to future conversations. Uh, thanks for making time for us this morning. If people want to check out your piece, and I do recommend they do some great insights, they'll find it at theconversation.com, alleged political interference in the Nova Scotia mass shootings means the RCMP must be restructured. We've been hearing from Dr. Eli Sopo, a professor of change management and leadership at University Canada West, joining us live from Vancouver. Nice to see your face. Thanks, Ryan. Great show you have. Yeah, appreciate that. I encourage you to check that out again at theconversation.com. If you have thoughts on this, I guarantee there's RCMP members that are listening to the show that are hearing this. Uh, you, you can write in. You can let us know, you know, your your name, your position, Uh, Or if you'd like, uh, you can, I mean, it's always great for us if you can provide some proof that you are who you say you are, but you may say I have a pseudonym I prefer you use. I don't necessarily want to be called into the supervisor's office, but here's some insight into what it's been like for us. Maybe you're the spouse or the partner or, or the son or the daughter of somebody who serves. Maybe you're the parent of somebody in the RCMP that may have some insight into this and be curious to know. Uh, we also have conversations undergoing, uh, of course, and, and underway on our live chat, as happens, uh, about Patrick Brown, the mayor of Brampton, Ontario, apparently interested in seeking another term there, uh, wants to be mayor again, but he's booted out of the Conservative Party of Canada's leadership race. It had kind of been in a way, is it fair to say this? I always try to qualify, uh, maybe a bit of a three-horse race maybe uh, is it fair to say that that Pierre Poliev appears to be in the lead and then there were two I think semi-legitimate contenders in Jean Charest and in Patrick Brown and and then of course there were others right Dr. Leslie Lewis and Roman Baber I'm talking past tense there are others they're seeking this leadership and I didn't even name them all but Patrick Brown was like kind of in the top three um, a, a prominent political player obviously the former for a short period of time leader of the progressive conservative party and in Ontario and they say that there have been uh, serious uh, allegations, allegations of, of serious issues within the campaign financing. Heidi making an interesting point on our live chat, and I wondered if this might surface. She says, it is super interesting that Calgary Member of Parliament, MP Michelle Rempel-Garner, dropped that campaign. She was like steering that campaign. She was a prominent player in the Patrick Brown campaign, and and, and he started losing political support federal political support you saw some can i call them defectors mps i guess who kind of changed their mind they supported him until they didn't prominent canadian conservatives and right up until we got close to the end michelle rempel garner was was kind of like one of the two she was one of the last ones standing with profile federally speaking and then she said, well, I'm going to step away from that campaign because you'll remember Michelle Rempel Garner says, well, I'm getting some, some some pressure. She says, I'm hearing from a lot of you. I'm getting a lot of messages. People want me to consider seeking the leadership of Alberta's United Conservative Party. She mm-hmm. says, I'm considering a, a political. She, she didn't really hint too much, although I thought a lot of the pundits, including <laughs> us, I thought, I thought, well, it sounds to me like she's getting ready to announce. Yeah. And if she announces, she's probably going to win. 
So then people start going bing, bang, boom. They start looking at it like hopscotch in their brain and they go, Michelle Rempel Garner is going to be the next premier of Alberta. And people Mm -hmm. started running with that and thinking about that until she wasn't until her announcement was that she's decided not to seek the leadership of the United Conservative Party in Alberta. And she had already stepped away from the Patrick Brown campaign. And all of a sudden it seemed like everything was kind of like these two clean exits, right? The one hypothetical allowed her to exit the involvement with Patrick Brown. And then the hypothetical evaporated her decision. Fair enough. And then all of a sudden her hands were washed. And Heidi says it is super interesting that she dropped the campaign, created distraction. I don't know. Is that what she did? Maybe created distraction by putting her name optional as an option for the UCP and then dropped that too, as if this just happened. Heidi says, I'm very curious about that. And then she follows up and says, also, good morning, everybody. So I love that. <laughs> nice and polite. That from Heidi. Fantastic stuff. Uh, we're going to be talking about child safety online in just a second. This is a really important and, quite frankly, chilling conversation. This is one of those ongoing or continuing conversations we're having on the show. But before we get to that, it's a big day at West Edmonton Mall as the mayor of the mall. The first ever is welcome. This wow. is so very cool. Maya is the mayor of the mall today in support of Adaptabilities, which is a really important program. We're proud to support it along with our friends at Local Environmental Services and West Edmonton Mall. Uh, Maya is the inaugural mayor of the mall today. Her term begins, and that means that she's going to be treated to a one-of-a-kind experience at West Edmonton Mall, tailored specifically to her interests, transportation to the mall, VIP access to all the attractions. She's not waiting in any lines, John. Careful, Maya. She's not waiting in any lines. Careful. And they've also set up, they've pulled her. They, they asked her, what were your favorite stores? She let them know, and they're taking her on a shopping spree. Careful, mall politics, uh, Maya. Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Political interference. I don't know. I wonder, if you were mayor for a yeah. day at the mall. Are you going to get the, the oh, gruff, too, man, from people? That would be unbelievable <laughs> stuff. I might try to bring back the dolphins, but I don't, I don't know about that. She's got a night coming up at Fantasyland Hotel as well. Both West Edmonton Mall and our friends at Local Environmental Services place a really strong emphasis on support of the local economy and the broader community, and that's why they've launched this Mayor of the Mall charitable program together. We encourage you to follow West Edmonton Mall and Local Environmental social channels today, and you can keep an eye on Maya, her turn as the first ever mayor of the mall in support of adaptabilities. We absolutely love that stuff. Our friends at Grand Dog Essentials want to remind you that they're more than just quality raw food for dogs. Now, our dogs enjoy Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food, but if you go under the Shop Now link, you'll find products they've also got for cats. There are a ton of benefits for animals eating raw, and you can find all of the information under their well-organized blog. We love the blog link because it helps you better understand things like probiotics, prebiotics. Why would you choose raw? How do you deal with food allergies when it comes to your dog and, and even what your dog's poop is telling you? John, what's your dog's poop telling you? <laughs> it's telling me, wake up. <laughs> I did kind of put you on the spot on that one. But you can tell a lot about your dog's health 
by of taking course. a look at what you're picking up in the yard. It's true. This is real life, everybody. You'll find at granddog.ca some amazing resources on helping your dog live their best and most healthy life. Don't forget, they deliver to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and through Central Alberta. The promo code Grand uh, Real Talk, rather, promo code Real Talk gets you ten percent off your first order at Grand Dog. And this week, we warmly welcome Apex Automation to our roster of sponsors, of supporters. We're so proud to do business with this team of talented experts that are providing intuitive, fully autonomous solutions to industry. They're giving people back their time. Whether you're running uh, a timber mill or a brewery, whether you work in AI or whether you work in customer service, there's a chance that Apex Automation could dramatically transform what your business does. You can learn more, including career opportunities, at apexautomation.ca. Oh, hit that post. You know, my wife. that it wasn't on my radar. My wife is all about watching our dog's uh, bowel movements (laughs) and knowing what that means. I mean, she switched the food because dogs, no, much like humans, you know how your allergies and your taste change over time. So does your animals, right? So she, like, three times in its six year lifespan, she's switched the food because she can tell, like, 100%. Stomach isn't digesting it properly like it used to. And so you got to keep an eye on it. Yeah, especially because animals. In particular, I don't know about others. I'm, I don't have a, like an area of expertise in animals, but I mm. will say that a lot of times you find that something is horribly wrong, right? You you you, find, you get terrible news about your pet, yeah. and and maybe the the vet kind of says, "Listen, uh, your pet in a way has been hiding this from you, and you shouldn't have they, been feeding them. They mask dry the food pain, or whatever. They don't, you know, and they they have this discomfort, and they can't tell us about it, and it's mm-hmm. important to keep an eye on it. So, yeah. love that stuff. <laughs> Didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> But again, I'm the one that puts you on the spot, so I got what I deserved. You did. You did. Yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get serious for a second. This is the, a, a story of a, a 13-year-old Edmonton girl that, that wound up in Portland, Oregon, abducted, uh, allegedly, by this 41-year-old man who's now facing charges, uh, an Oregon man. And it's got people talking about child luring. It's got people talking about child exploitation. It's got people having a lot of important conversations. uh, And we're glad that those conversations are happening as difficult as they may be. In just a second, we're going to welcome a mom to the show. Anna Savage reached out to us. She's willing to share her story. But I wanted to read this letter first from Amanda. We got this to talk at ryanjesperson.com just yesterday. She said, I listened to your interview uh, with uh, the sergeant, with the RCMP sergeant, uh, Dr. Kerry Sheehan. Why do I keep calling him doctor? Sergeant Kerry Shima of the RCMP, the Internet Child Exploitation Unit. They call it the ICE unit. Uh, says, I listened to that interview and I was very grateful uh, to hear you discuss the importance of educating kids about technology. Amanda says, I worked in a daycare for five years, public schools for three years. Now I work uh, at a place called Discover Coding. It's a local business that teaches computer science, digital safety, and coding to kids. How neat is that? Says, I learned very early on in my career that kids are exposed to dangerous situations online as early as five years old. Then this can include pornography. It can include strangers trying to connect with them and certainly online bullying. Uh, Amanda says, I want to reinforce the message that was shared by Sergeant Shima about educating kids and, and parents and trust in particular. I don't believe that removing tech from kids is the answer necessarily tech's here to stay we need to make sure kids understand how to navigate it how to use it safely for the rest of their lives early on parents need to be regularly introducing conversations on consent on engaging with strangers online and on digital citizenship 
She says, I strongly recommend parents visit Common Sense Media. Uh, Amanda, I'm so glad you mentioned it. We actually have an interview request in with them. Uh, It's an amazing website. It is. That has tools to help kids understand digital safety and the Internet. They also review apps and games and websites for parents. Amanda says, I also recommend, recommend checking out our educational technology programs at Discover Coding, where we use the platforms that kids already love to teach them how to safely use and enjoy technology in a meaningful and valuable way. Amanda says, thanks for bringing more real conversations to the community. Thanks for helping us all engage in this important dialogue. Amanda, thank you. So again, that's Discover Coding. You can Google it. And uh, and I'm looking forward to our conversation with a spokesperson from Common Sense Media. There's an expert in particular we're trying to get. She's an expert uh, when it comes to kids and tech and online safety uh, tips for parents, things to keep in mind. There's a lot we don't know about, isn't there? Let's be honest. And it's so easy to all of a sudden become blindsided by something that's the story that's our next guest really anna savage is the mom to three teenage girls she's a real talker and she reached out to us on the heels of our conversation with sergeant shima anna it means a lot to have you here we appreciate you taking the time to talk about something that is pretty personal for you and your loved ones isn't it yeah thanks ryan it it is personal and and it's important and so uh, i'm grateful to be able to share our story so that others can learn before it's too late. Anna, what was the deal? You've got three teenage girls. Uh, They have access to technology, obviously. As a parent, you're probably wanting to be, quote unquote, normal and give them their space. But at some point in your household's red flags started waving. Yeah, absolutely. So really, one of our daughters ended up in a high risk, a high risk situation that we caught uh, literally uh, the day before. Um, there was supposed to be uh, like a meetup. And um, and we are in a home where all of the schools they went to had their cyber safety week and taught the kids and how to be safe. And we taught about it. I, I work in a field where I uh, provide all kinds of ad, uh, advice on privacy and information security and information management. So they were, we were always having those conversations um, and the teaching was happening um, including the parental controls. And what occurred in the situation of one of our daughters is she was on Instagram and uh, and really, a, I think a classic predatory situation where these kids are on Instagram and, and then somebody with a cool profile starts liking all of their posts and putting comments. And, and the reason they're doing that is they're building rapport, right? And so this really cool guy is like got lots of followers and seems really awesome. And he's liking everything and they're responding. Thank you so much. Oh, that's so nice of you to say this goes on for a bit. And then eventually he reached out by message, direct message. And at that point they've now friended them and they've shared with their friends and there's, uh, they feel like there's actual real a relationship occurring where there's a connection. Um, and they thought he was another kid their age. He was not. Um, and it progressed to where it became sexual content. And, and then uh, he began to share images of himself. And I really appreciated Sergeant Shima on Monday saying how if a kid, if we're, doing, we're actually being good parents and protecting our kids, they don't know what trickery is. So they're not looking for it. Right. And that's good to, to keep in mind. We, you know, we, these, these kids are naive is actually parents doing their job, right? We're protecting them and keeping them safe. So they're not expecting it. So then what he did was he started sharing photos and and they really, if they're good at predation, they understand those social contracts. 
if I do something for you, you do something for me. And if you're a preteen, social contracts, that's your life. If you don't know how to do social contracts, you're not connecting. You're not, you know, you don't have friends. So they understand that. So he sends photos and then he starts saying, well, I sent you something. Can you send me something? And so despite even my education in the field I work in and saying, it doesn't matter if you know the person, it's the secondary sharing. That's the risk. You don't know what they're going to do with your information when you share it. Even despite all that, she still shared some photos and it ultimately led to where they had arranged a meetup and he had sent an address and she was going to go to school the next morning, like in theory, and she was then actually going to take the bus to this address and meet him. And I, we caught it the day before that happened. Anna, at this point, how old was your daughter? She had just turned 14. 14. And so how did this plan wind up on your radar? I mean, were you, were you taking a look through her social media? Did she feel that she was in too deep and volunteer it? Right. So, no, I would just wonder if that ever happens. I don't know. Maybe it does. Do, do kids ever? I don't know if they know if they're in too deep, right? I, yeah, great point. Yeah. And so, no, it was her dad, my husband, um, and they had a very difficult relationship during that time. He was on her constantly about her phone. We had house rules. Can't have your, can't have technology at the table, supper table, breakfast table. Right. But then outside of that, he's like, if she's not doing something, she's on her phone all the time. She has her door closed. I, and he was constantly on her and their relationship was really tense. And he kept saying, I don't like this. I don't like doing this she's really addicted to this and and we'd set rules and then you know she'd try to kind of push the push back at him and so they had a really typical relationship and I was more like well you know she's you're, can, you're being a little harsh can you just say it nicely <laughs> you know like trying to be like just like trying to facilitate like oh you're being really hard on her but also I hear what you're saying and 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 what had happened was when the girls were really little and we started thinking about somebody babysitting or stuff we had a conversation in their early years where we agreed that if either of us were ever in a situation where only one of us felt uncomfortable with leaving the child there or were having spidey senses that we would always default to the person who felt the least comfortable so we made that rule early on we're like so so what happened was something happened that one day she we're working full-time jobs so we don't know that she was leaving school early and going to the mall and trying to arrange some of these meetings um, and kept getting interrupted by dad. And um, so I realized that when I got home from work, I'd come home early that day. She wasn't there. And so then my husband said, something's going on. I don't know what it is, but you need to do something. And I was essentially, he was bad cop at that point. I was the cop. So I said, okay, this is our agreement. And I said to her, I need to look at your phone. Yeah. Your dad has some real concerns. I share some concerns now. I feel you're not being honest. I have to look at your phone right now. You need to give me the phone and I'm going to give you the names, the apps, and you're going to tell me the code and I'm going to go in and, inf- and I'm going to look at these. So like full disclosure, right? And so she did and, and I found everything and um, I've never actually shared any, I took screenshots of everything and I've never actually shared all of that with my husband. I don't, he, he, I don't think he could handle it. I just shared enough to say to him, there's something happening and, and she's in real danger. So where do you go from there? I mean, you, you, you obviously you entered the timing of it, your husband's gut instinct, the spidey senses, yeah. as you call them, the timing, who knows what could have happened. Mm-hmm. Right. 
mm-hmm. but what was the resulting impact on your relationship with your daughter? I mean, you know, fast forward to present day when you look back on this, how yeah. long ago was this? Well, and so this happened <clears throat> in 2020, right before the pandemic. So just a couple and, of years ago. Yeah, just and and I and I want to say this carefully because I'm so aware that there has been terrible losses from the pandemic. It has been a terrible thing for many. But this this situation occurred a week before all of the schools were shut down and all the kids were sent home. And that timing, it saved our family because all of a sudden I'm working remotely, so I'm home all day. And she's now home all day. And they're all and all of their friends are all home. And so we, it just um, brought us together as a family unit where we, I could actually monitor and give her the support she desperately needed at a critical time that I'm not sure what we would have done if not for actually that circumstance. We had talked about actually pulling her from school and for me actually making arrangements to work remotely um, to support her. And the interesting thing is once she was caught and I mean, at minimum, at minimum, there was, when you have that level of deceit, there is, this is not an individual looking for a consensual relationship. There, at minimum, there was going to be um, harm done to her. That's a given. Um, the worst case scenario would be that, you know, loss of life. So, so yeah. the, the, even the best case scenario wasn't going to be a good scenario. So she began to understand that. Um, and um and of course, all this got reported. And in, in fact, the individual fully confessed once they knew I had screenshots of everything. Um, so that actually saved us a lot of challenges around that situation because they did a full confession. Well, and I wanted to ask you, when you say a confession, what do you mean? I mean, was this reported to police? What do we know about this person? Yeah. So uh, the following day, of course, we submitted a report. But prior to <laughs> I don't recommend this, but prior to that, uh, of um because the person had given their address. Um, so my husband actually went to that address. And I knew Ryan, you said, I don't know what I would do as a father. And that's such a good thing to think about because he actually went to the address and the individual was at the door, but the door was locked and was kind of like, what are you doing here? Because who shows up at someone's door? And he identified himself. I'm the father of. Wow. And And actually in that moment, I think had lucidity to go, I don't trust myself in this moment and said, you need to call somebody right now because if you open that door, I do not trust what I'm going to do to you. So that individual actually did call a brother and sister-in-law and, and, and they came. And, uh, and so then, um, anyhow, I, I got involved in terms of, they called me and we said, we're going to be placing, we're making a report. Um, you should know though that because of course they were like, he would never do this. We were raised in a religious home and he's a good religious man and he's like kindest person and i was like so you we have screenshots yeah you want to see the receipts exactly and i said you you i i would and i would not share these with these family members i said first of all i don't want to reshare these but also you should probably get some support if you're prepared to see these right and so um so then we then they actually got involved and he did a full confession and turned himself in and, and, and that got taken over and they have our, they had our screenshots so that then we were no longer involved. Um, but, uh, you know, hopefully he got the help he needed. Uh, his family was devastated. Um, so it definitely has ripple effects. Yeah. Um, it was traumatic for them. Um, and thankfully he has people in his life that care. Right. Um, and, and so that, and then in terms of dad, um, I was able to, share with her 
how it was escalating. And we were able to really walk through timelines. And when it was discovered and she realized she'd been had, um, then she, you actually saw relief. Like, you've saved me. Like, you know, there was just a relief that came over her. And I was able to say, all of these times, this situation would have escalated much more quickly before we could have intervened had your father not been a pain in the ass, right? Yeah. And here's a, like, here's a chat where she's like, my dad's being an asshole. I got to go. My dad's making me get off my phone. I got to go. My dad's telling me I have to come out of my room. I got how many chat messages between them that got intercepted because he was like on her. And so I was able to say to her, your dad, this is love. This may not sometimes feel like love, but this is what love looks like. If you've questioned your dad loves you, this is love. And it really healed their relationship going forward. Wow. So ultimately, I mean, and I would imagine this must have been, you know, I mean, we don't, of course, want to identify your daughter. So we won't have her on the show to talk about this. But I would, <laughs> but I would imagine in, in her conversations in, in these special and, and maybe difficult moments, uh, these mother daughter moments as well, the journey that she was on uh, of when you realize like 14, you're 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 an old young kid or you're a young yeah. old teen, like you're kind of in that middle like you're figure you're, you're old enough to get your learner's permit, but you're too young to draw, you know, you're and, and, and these life experiences, realizing that you've been manipulated, realizing you've been duped and strung along, realizing that, quite frankly, you were being targeted by a predator um, that would really do something to a young person. Uh, how's your daughter doing today? You know, she's good. And part of the reason she got pulled in and our other two daughters were always extremely careful and always like, oh, be careful of, be, like, they're like, be careful if you use this game because there's, you know, you got to watch who texts you. So the other two are super hypervigilant and she wasn't is her, her psychological construct is different, right? Everybody's different and her needs were different. And so she got pulled in because she needed something that was, that was meeting that need. And she, we, we got her into therapy and she's that she is not the same person, her personal growth through all of this, she has um, just turned to, into an exceptional um, person who is is a delight um, to have as part of our family who's very engaged. And we as a family have become very close through all of this um, because, you know, you realize it's a safe space that we're, we, that ultimately the things we do is because we love each other. And that's also why I say to parents, let those kids hate you during those years. Junior high years, be vigilant. It is not enough just to teach. You need to be monitoring them and let them be mad at you for it because love sometimes is tough. Mm. Anna, I told you in our correspondence ahead of this interview, I said, I have no doubt that your story is going to resonate with and benefit a countless number of people. The people that are going to hear this, I guarantee we're going to get feedback from others that are sharing, unfortunately, uh, similar stories. I'm so grateful that it has, for all intents and purposes, a positive outcome uh, what an unbelievable example of that that parental intuition and the need to act on it. Thank you so much for being willing to talk about something so personal today, Anna. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Ryan. You got it. That's uh, Real Talker Anna Savage. Wow. Who reached out to us. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want to say like, I don't want to use the word ideal situation. Yeah. But like the fact that 
the perpetrator like confessed, realized he needed help. The dad realized that he was going to lose his temper at the door and told him to call a family. If member. lose his temper means bludgeon, uh, we know what that means. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, protecting the perpetrator's family from the images that she had seen because she knew that they weren't great. Like, I don't want to say ideal situation, but that, like, handled correctly in every way. The guy's getting help. The perpetrator's getting help. The family's get. I just... I was like, as she kept talking, I was yeah. just getting more and more amazed well, I can at tell the it's, story. Yeah, the audience too is just, people are just going, wow. Because that right? situation does not happen often. Often it's, you know, the yeah. worst The worst thing happens. Right? So, Tony says, junior high school, those years are such a hard time for young people. You know, you're too old to play with Barbies and trucks and you're too young to party all night. It's a weird time for those kids. Lauren says with both parents working or single parent families, right, kids can slip through the cracks and stories like this are so important uh, to bear down on kids activities. Um, You know, yeah, Brenda says, if you got you got a gut feeling, you've got to go with it. Sharon says, you've always got to trust those spidey senses, right? Tracy says, you got to go with your gut, says our youth need us to intervene at times, not to scare them to death, but to support them in making those choices. Karen asking a very fair question, says, I wonder how many other young girls that man had lured. How frightening for Anna's family, right? Chad just says, I have chills listening to that. Me, too. In our correspondence with Anna ahead of time, it was like. Man, oh, man, her husband's showing up. And who can blame him? And she says, I don't recommend it. Like, that's not the ideal circumstance. You, I don't, but you've got the address of this guy that's sending nudes to your young 14-year-old daughter? Like, I don't have children, and even I would know that oh, I, would, hell I yeah. would go there. Hell yeah. <laughs> no, of course, we'll say there. don't, but I don't blame the guy. Uh, we'll talk politics in just a second. These conversations happen because of uh, amazing Real Talk sponsors like the team at Park Power who want to remind you that, yeah, their website's great for comparing rates, electricity, natural gas, and internet. You know, bundle them all together, pay less. But also, they've got a great blog resource. If you go to parkpower.ca and just scroll down, you'll, you'll, you'll see the cool stuff. You know, the features like no cancellation fees. I like that. They're confident in their relationship with their customers. No cancellation fees. They're not going to try to rake you through the coals if you're moving on but they've also got a great resource here the blog post on this government of alberta electricity rebate program have you heard about people getting scammed here the the people there's these phishing scams related to this rebate program Uh, we don't want you to lose your shirt nor does park power so go ahead and check out that valuable resource today parkpower.ca and don't forget when you bring your business over to them the promo code 2022 real talk gets you 70 dollars off your first bill So you're signed up with Park Power. Now it's time to get your solar installed, right? There's a great relationship. Park Power will buy back your surplus energy. And those are from the panels that Kubi Energy installs. You can get your free quote today at kubienergy.ca. I had a chance to connect with Jake, the CEO over at Kubi. The other day went out to the country. He said he wants me to see one of these Kubi cubes, they're called. I was telling you about this, these Mm -hmm. shipping containers that are covered with solar panels and then a huge battery unit inside. It's so cool. Uh, The guy's got it powering essentially an entire rural property. All of the lights, a lot of the tools that are being powered out there. It's it's a really remarkable bit of technology. And they're starting to ship them all over the place because the applications are as endless as your imagination. Maybe you're out in the oil field. Maybe you've got a, a remote cabin or a cottage that's totally off the grid, but you could use power. You could use reliability. Check out what Kubi can offer at kubienergy.ca. 
And of course, our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that they are proudly serving 16 different Alberta communities for more than 65 years. Alberta grown, Alberta owned. Our recent Canada Day festivities were fueled by Friesen Brothers, including I was talking yesterday about our pork belly that we did up like burnt ends these chunks of pork belly absolutely fabulous but what about the smoked maple baked beans what about the creamy home style mac and cheese on the side and then we went of course with the sourdough buns for anybody that wanted to turn this into a sandwich i took their fresh from scratch coleslaw john a little bit of dijon mustard and built myself one of the most unbelievable sandwiches i've ever had sourdough is just makes everything better my favorite pizza place just switched to sourdough in their crust it's a huge deal it's incredible way better you have their sourdough cinnamon buns at Friesen brothers unfortunately we don't have enough time for me to really recite a love letter to the sourdough cinnamon buns but you can find them (laughs) yourself at Friesen brothers learn more at Friesen.com oh killing it today jeez the band the studio (laughs) band is just nailing it well, it's been a while since we've had a chance to connect with our next guest, and we always appreciate an opportunity to collect uh, to connect uh, with uh, Dr. Lisa Young. Uh, we endeavored to connect uh, a couple of weeks ago when her piece first came out. She's been writing about this this so-called glass cliff that she argues may threaten conservative women that are running for leader of Alberta's United Conservative Party. That uh, piece was published uh, on the 22nd of June. And then, Doctor, we took a brief hiatus from the show, so we appreciate your, your your patience and you making time. Welcome back. It's always great to have you here. Happy to be here. Yeah. Hey, no, things are developing politically as we speak. And I was wondering if I could throw a couple curveballs to you out of the gates here before we talk about your piece, before we talk about the concept of the glass cliff. And, and it's an important one for us to consider. But there have been de- developments overnight, including Patrick Brown uh, getting kicked out of disqualified of this federal conservative leadership race. You have any insights into this one specifically? What does it mean, do you think? Well, this is wild. You know, I've been following Canadian politics for quite a while, and I don't remember anything like this ever happening um, for a party to come in and say, no, you know, mid-race, you're disqualified. So this is huge. Um, I think we know that Pierre Polyev was going to win this uh, race. You know, there's nothing uh, terribly surprising about that. But it's that much clearer now, right? Um, Brown sold the second uh, largest number of memberships. And uh, assuming that, you know, this ruling of the the party organization uh, holds, which I I suspect it will, um, you know, I, I think that the conservative race is all but over now. What do you? Yeah. And I'm inclined to agree with you. And I know we should never just stick a fork in it because, you know, I mean, crazier things have happened. But really, for for Pierre Polyev to to lose this perceived lead that he has right now and he's got his foot uh, firmly planted on the gas. I mean, there's no looking back for this campaign. It, it, it seems like a done deal. Are you a little surprised? I mean, there were some so-called fringe candidates. I think Dr. Leslin Lewis certainly has some supporters and ardent supporters as that. And you didn't want to write off her campaign uh, out of the gates. There were some others that were intriguing. Are, are you surprised that the Jean Charest campaign has, has, for all intents and purposes, for such an experienced politician, maybe been a bit of a whimper? Um. <laughs> I was surprised when he jumped into the race. Uh, this really seems to me like the the last gasp of the old progressive conservative uh, wing of the party. Uh, he was really the last one left who was willing to jump into the race. And so, 
you know, he, he didn't have the same kind of organization behind him that someone who had been active in federal politics would have had. Um, the, the ties between Quebec and the Federal Conservative Party are not strong, so it was difficult, I think, in many ways for him to make inroads in the rest of the country. I think, you know, the path for anybody else to win this race was, you know, whether it was Patrick Brown or Jean Charest, was those second preferences, right? Uh, whichever one of them, you know, came second on the first ballot, if the other one had enough uh, second preference votes to transfer over, then maybe there was a path to victory, but it, it was going to take an awful lot of planets aligning for that to happen. Yeah, it's always interesting in races like this where oftentimes second place is kind of the sweet spot, right? If you, You're first place with a lot of people, but you might be number five on a lot of other folks' lists, and if you can be, like who's an example, like Ed Stelmack's kind of an example, I guess, for Albertans, right? You just come right up the middle as the number two, three choice on everybody's ballot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, coming back to the Alberta race, I, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those uh, second, third and fourth preferences start to really matter in, in such a big uh, uh group of candidates running for the uh, UCP leadership. And let's talk about this. We've we've spoken to a number of them. We've talked to, to Rajan Sani. We talked to Leela here. Um, we, we just talked to Rebecca Schultz. We're going to be talking to Daniel Smith next week. I'm looking forward to that interview. Uh, people have a lot of questions for Daniel Smith. You got Brian Jean in the mix, which makes this certainly interesting and others. Uh, how are you wrapping your mind around what you're seeing uh, around the race for, for frankly, who's going to be Alberta's next premier? That's what this is all about. Absolutely. And, you know, at this point, the first thing I'm looking at is who makes it over the, the hurdle of raising enough money to actually be in the race. And so we saw an announcement yesterday, I think it was, that Travis Taves has has managed to be approved. The party has given him the thumbs up. Um, he's passed the, you know, the tests that they've set, uh, looking at people's social media presence and uh, their, their background and so on. And uh, he's raised enough money to uh, formally enter the race. We don't know at this point whether, you know, some of those candidates who you've already had on the show are going to be able to stay in the race, right? Can they raise 175 grand? Do you think it's a good thing when 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 there's like people take a look at the fundraising totals and and uh, and and people if you need a break, by the way, I can take a quick break. Just let me know, Lisa. We keep it real here. Uh, it's no problem if we need to take a quick break. But pe people will take a look at the leadership races. And a lot of time people want to talk about accessibility to politics or things like hurdles standing in the way of certain people accessing politics or the barriers that stand in the way of people from from certain socioeconomic backgrounds or, or perhaps certain genders or perhaps certain uh, geographical locations, whatever the case may be ethnic backgrounds religious backgrounds barriers that stand in the way of, of of politics at the same time leadership races are a great opportunity to sell memberships and raise money and raise awareness right and so the parties have to find a way to to balance that where do you stand on these what are described as relatively lofty fundraising totals these minimums yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting that the party has done this because it really does mean that a candidate has to be a powerful fundraiser in order to get into the race. Now, you know, are, are women disadvantaged in that? Not necessarily. Uh, you know, there's there's lots of literature about uh, female candidates' ability to raise money. And I, I think early on when women were new to politics, it was really hard. Uh, they didn't have the same kinds of networks that uh, uh, male politicians did. We do know that women are still less likely to give money um, politically. And uh, so that can be a bit of a barrier. But 
certainly, you know, when we look at uh, the the women who are in the UCP race, um, you know, both uh, Lila here and Rajan Sanui um, are, are coming from um, the South Asian community, which actually is a huge source of uh, money politically. They, they donate far more frequently than just about any other group uh, in Canadian politics. There's some really interesting political science research on that. So, you know, there's certainly possibilities for these uh, candidates to get in there. But given that you can only uh, raise money, uh, you know, $1,600 uh, at a time, it, it takes a lot of contributions to get to that 175000 And then after that, you've got to be able to run a campaign. Yeah, you've got to be a hell of an organizer. You've got to have a formidable team. Uh, then again, of course, these are the qualities that you would require or expect from somebody that's going to win a general election next year, right? So in a way, you're kind of proving to party members and you're essentially proving to Albertans and the rest of the country that you have what it takes. Yeah. And, you know, if we look at the fundraising numbers in Alberta over the past couple of years, we know that the UCP is at a disadvantage to the NDP. And, you know, that's really quite something for a governing party not to be able to raise as much money as the opposition party, you know, for a party that's got lots of ties to business, not being able to raise money at the same rate as, as the opposition party is, is a, a real problem for the party. And so whoever is, is elected party leader is going to have to hit the ground running in the new year and, and really get the money coming in if the party is going to put on a credible campaign. Mm. Some people I've seen commenting online are, are crossing their fingers. Uh, if I'll just say it plainly. They're hoping that a woman wins this race and they would love to see a female United Conservative leader square off against a female NDP leader in a general election in Alberta. But you've argued again, and for people looking for this, it was posted June 22nd of this year, a couple of weeks ago at cbc.ca, a so-called glass cliff may threaten United Conservative women running for leader. Can you take us into what this glass cliff is and, and what the red flags look like to you? Sure thing. And maybe the first thing I'll say is that I tried to convince them that the, you know, the headline should be a question. And they told me, no, we don't like that. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's really a question, right? Is this a glass cliff? So I'll, I'll take you into the, the glass cliff. So this is uh, a, an idea that came out of the business uh, research literature. And um, some British researchers thought, isn't it weird that there are companies that do really badly after they've added a bunch of women to their uh, boards of directors? What's going on here? And so they rolled up their sleeves and they looked carefully at, at these companies. And what they found was that the companies were already in trouble when they reached out and started putting women on their board. And so what looked like a result of, you know, if you put women on your board, then you perform badly, was actually the other way around. It was when they were performing badly, they started looking to do something differently. There were all of a sudden opportunities for women to join the board. Um, and so this is an idea that's kind of transferred over into politics. And uh, some of the research, because you look at, you know, some really spectacular political failures um, that we seen from uh, female leaders in, in politics. And I always think here about Kim Campbell, first 
woman to be prime minister, first and only woman to be prime minister in, in Canada. Um, you know, she was prime minister for a number of months and then lost the 1993 election spectacularly. She went from, you know, having a majority in the House of Commons to two seats and she wasn't one of them. Um, so, you know, as failures go, that was enormous. But that was clearly, I think, a case of a glass cliff. That was, you know, a party that was in disarray. And it is, um, you know, it, it's pretty clear there that uh, what happened was that uh, uh, the party was in desperate trouble. And so they looked to having a woman as the leader as a way of doing something differently. Uh, and and she certainly played into this, right? It, during that campaign, she said, I'm gonna do politics differently. There wasn't a lot of substance to that, but uh, you know, it, it was certainly her claim, but it wasn't enough to overcome the structural difficulties that the the old pc party experienced right well, and you know, people are saying like so, yeah she was she was it, it was more like brian mulrooney lost the election than kim campbell losing the election right brian brian mulrooney's yeah. legacy lost the election you're hearing from uh, dr lisa young this is a fascinating concept the idea of this glass cliff it's essentially women set up to fail in positions of leadership positions uh political positions and, and i love i saw a comment from sharon you know we saw it sharon in our live chat she wants us to ask about and we certainly will we'll talk about assembly of first nations chief uh uh roseanne archibald who's currently suspended um allegations of bullying workplace bullying she's the first woman to be national chief of the assembly of first nations uh and 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 her suspension, as a matter of fact, pretty interesting as delegates at the Assembly of First Nations have voted overwhelmingly in support of National Chief Archibald, saying that they believe that this is essentially a hit job on on her leadership as she has attempted in through her tenure to shine a light on alleged corruption within the Assembly of First Nations. So that's an interesting angle that we'll take on uh, with Dr. Lisa Young in just a quick second. The interviews happen because of our sponsors that partner with this program that keep our lights on, so to speak and that allow us to keep this thing going and that includes the amazing teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge I always tell you about the trucks I'm driving, the vehicles I'm driving. They had me in a Grand Cherokee a while ago. Absolutely loved that. And then I said, we're looking for something with a little more room for the summer, something that gives us more options to get the family out, whether it's uh, car camping or whether it's to the trailhead for a backcountry adventure. The Dodge Ram 1500 has been a perfect fit, and I've loved driving. It's the Longhorn Edition that I'm in, which gives you that little Western flair, some nice detailing on the dash and stitched into the leather. My next-door neighbor, Chad, ended up picking up the Ram 1500 Limited, another beautiful trim package. He's using that to pull his new trailer. Flip side, a lot of people are taking a look at the price of gas right now and saying, we're looking for something more in the four-cylinder variety, something that offers a little more efficiency. This new Jeep Wrangler 4xe, it's the electric version of the iconic Jeep Wrangler. They've got them in stock. You have to test drive one. They're absolutely unbelievable. The classic Jeep styling with the newest technology. You'll find the best selection in Alberta at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. And John, why don't we give a shout out to our friends at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. I've kind of enjoyed this new tradition we're establishing where you surprise me with the talking point for the day. Today, it is the new signature Stack Burgers. It's a great day to go pick up either the flamethrower 
third pound double combo. That's the flamethrower. A little pizzazz, a little spice. Light your mouth on fire with this flamethrower. <laughs> At Dairy Queen, and of course, the loaded steakhouse. This is the third pound double combo. I suggest you make it a triple. Why wouldn't you? You've got the bacon, the cheese, and then, of course, you've got that iconic Dairy Queen onion ring. That's the signature stack burger collection. You can find them at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. That's Baseline Road, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. Make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you. We ready to rock with Dr. Young? Love it. Dr. Lisa Young joining us, a professor of political science. So we're talking about this concept of the glass cliff. People may just be joining us right now, live streaming on the Mixler audio app. It's the idea of women. Am I, am I, characterize, am I mischaracterizing it by saying set up to fail? Because it's not like at the time when, when, when a new opportunity is provided for political leadership or corporate leadership, the idea is not to throw someone to the wolves, is it? No, I don't think it's a conspiracy like that at all. I think it's a recognition, you know, whether it's by a company or a political party, that the way they're currently doing things isn't working. They need to change it up. They need to do something different. So they're open to new ideas, you know, like having a woman leader. Um, and they think that that might actually make the difference. Um, so they're not setting that leader up to fail. They want her to succeed. It's just that they maybe haven't looked at the structural underpinnings and thought about whether that's really going to be enough to pull, uh, you know, to, to pull the, the company or the political party out of the, the downturn that it's in. Why, why do you think it is Lisa, like what's we, we've, we're talking about the symptoms here or the evidence of this or at least trends. Um, but what's the greater factor at play here? What do you think it is? Uh, it, in all of this? Well, I, sexism, right? You know, and and uh, a, a deep attachment to the way that things have always been done. Uh, what we consider to be normal is to have a man leading a political party. It's still a novelty uh, to have a woman or a person of color uh, in a position like that. And, you know, it, it's reflected in the media coverage. It's reflected in how people see that uh, person, uh, that, that political leader, their evaluations of them, and anything that's different from that, you know, white, middle-aged male norm is is still seen as a novelty. And so being a novelty can certainly uh, be an advantage under some circumstances. You can turn it into something positive, but lots of times it can be seen as as a negative that, you know, you, you have to fight against uh, perceptions that you're less qualified just because of your gender, or the color of your skin. Is there anyone that comes to mind? Is there a woman that has defied this trend that has that has uh, shattered this glass cliff or said hell no or paved it over whatever metaphor we want to use? Was there one that said that's not going to be my story? I think more and more we see that, right? You know, this isn't uh, a certainty. It, just because there's lots of women running for the leadership doesn't necessarily mean that the UCP is doomed to, to fail in the next election. But, you know, the example that I talk about in, in that uh, column is Kathleen Wynne in uh, Ontario, who took over from uh, Dalton McGuinty, who's party was in, you know, terrible trouble. And, you know, the party looked for something different. And so they got Kathleen Wynne, uh, you know, who was a woman who was, you know, open about her sexuality. So she was non-traditional in a couple of ways. And she was able to turn things around and, you know, was uh, re-elected or elected and then re-elected premier a couple of times, you know, eventually uh, <laughs> the, she, uh, um, 
you know, her success fell by the wayside as well. But, you know, she she had a good run in office. And, you know, she's somebody who just, you know, said, no, this isn't a glass cliff. Um, I'm going to do things differently. Uh, she had a clear set of ideas that she wanted to pursue and uh, had a pretty successful political career as a result of it. I, I, I want to be fair to you because I when I when I talk to an expert like you, Lisa, and we've spoken several times, I just assume that you can offer us informed comments on every single story across the country. Uh, but, I, but I but I want to acknowledge that there may be some that you're not as up to speed on at the moment. But I mean, uh, can, can I can, can I say uh, can I assert that I think that a lot of Canadians would would acknowledge as a matter of fact, I bet you 75 percent of Canadians right now, if you stopped them on the street and said, who's the premier of Manitoba right now? I bet you 75 percent of Canadians wouldn't be able to properly answer the question. They'd be like, they'd be like Brian, Brian. You go, nah, uh, uh, it's not Brian. <laughs> no, it's not. It, it's it's Heather Stevenson. And, 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 and it's an interesting story there. She was most recently in the news, I guess, about a month ago. I was paying attention when pride organizers actually banned her from future events saying that she canceled on them on a, on a pride parade. That's not the type of news headline that you're looking for, but is, is what are you paying attention to, if anything, in Manitoba? And what do you make of that story there after Brian Pallister's resignation? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Heather Stephenson is an example of someone who might be on a glass cliff. Um, and, and there's lots, uh, not many of us follow Manitoba politics all that closely, truth be told. Um, I grew up there, so I, I do keep an eye on it. And, um, you know, there we had a, a situation that I think in some ways was pretty similar to what we saw going on here in, in Alberta. Um, the the premier of the province was, you know, a conservative premier, uh, Palliser. He was not hugely popular. There were certainly some issues. Uh, he spent a lot of time in Costa Rica, which of course ended with uh, the pandemic. But the the pandemic response there was quite similar to what we saw in Alberta in, in some ways. There was a lot of tension about it. Um, there are a lot of uh, religious communities in southern uh, Manitoba that really objected to vaccine mandates um, and, and to some of the restrictions. And so there was more and more pressure on uh, uh, on Palliser. And so he was, I think, quietly pushed out and the party held the leadership. And, you know, it's it's noteworthy, I think, that it was uh, two women who, who ran and, uh, you know, it, Heather Stephenson was successful. Um, but it's pretty hard to imagine right now that she is going to win uh, the next Manitoba election. Um, it, it seems to me that the NDP is is likely uh, to be the winners there. And, you know, this is a case where, you know, the, the, the province goes back and forth between the Conservatives and the NDP for government. You know, it's probably time for that to happen. Um, and there's Stephenson left sort of holding the bag um, uh, after, you know, lots of, of troubles for the uh, Manitoba Conservatives. And then again, you're the premier or you're the party leader that lost the election, right? And, and, and people kind of have these short memories, it seems, at least in some circumstances, about what led up to that or what the political landscape looked like as you were leading your party into that election, right? Absolutely. Sort of yeah. this, this this wake of destruction behind you that was not all your doing. Um, before I let you go, that you know, all the national newscasts are covering this and talking about this right now, the annual General Assembly, the Assembly of uh, First Nations uh, leaders voting against 
the National Chief's suspension. National Chief Roseanne Archibald has called her suspension unlawful. Uh, she's the first ever woman to hold this position. And I know that our, our audience uh, and, and me, quite frankly, uh, would be interested in, in, in hearing your general take on what's going on here. She's been shining. She's been making some people feel pretty uncomfortable about the culture there. And what she alleges is, is essentially uh, financial malfeasance uh, at minimum. Uh, what are you paying attention to with this story of the suspension of the national chief? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I want to be really cautious about commenting on this because I sure. haven't followed it as closely as I should be. And, you know, I think there are lots of, of layers and dimensions uh, to, to the internal politics of the AFN that you want to be really attentive to here. But I did read something, you know, really interesting earlier this morning, I think it was in the star, um, drawing some parallels between what's going on uh, in the AFN and what happened in the federal green party about a year ago, where we had, uh, the, you know, a, a black woman um, coming in as, as party leader and, and the party couldn't seem to manage to, to deal with uh, the, the you know some of her ideas, her approaches, and and you know again it's a complicated uh, situation, but it really does underline the difficulty that somebody who's different um, in some way and who sees things differently has going into an established organization and talking uh, about how the organization needs to do things differently and you know perhaps presenting some uncomfortable truths mm. i still can't wrap my head around the enemy paul story it was just like it felt like she was just cannibalized like her party just chewed her up and spit her out she she did an interview with us i uh, like i'm not going to say necessarily that i was like that day i resolved to vote green for the rest of my life but but i sure appreciated her perspective i sure appreciated her engagement she's she's intelligent she's articulate she, i i thought this is like a high profile federal party leader that could really make some inroads um in in communities that could really quite frankly send some mps to Ottawa. I mean, I just thought that, that the future was relatively bright and then just watch. And, and we don't all know the stories and we don't all know what happened. Some people do, obviously, but I just watching it happen. I mean, she was like it, it sort of started going sideways a couple days after she talked to us. And I remember just thinking at that time, like uh, I just it was it was mind boggling. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, I, I don't know the enough about the inside uh, really stories. Does. Of, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And I think we have to be really careful. But, uh, you know, really, and it's really interesting to think about the the challenge now that uh, she faces, you know, with a mandate from the membership on the one hand, but her executive, uh, you know, having tried to oust her. So, yeah. you know, not an easy situation at all. No kidding. Uh, Dr. Young, we, we ask you to come on the show to talk about the glass cliff. And then I ask you about like six different political stories across the across the country. And you offer us informed uh, comment and perspective on all of them. And it's why we keep asking to, to come back. It's so nice to see you again. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, you got it. That's Professor Lisa Young, Professor of Political Science at the University of Calgary. Make sure you give her a follow on Twitter. Uh, you can see all the Twitter handles for our guests that are on that social media platform every morning when we send out our lineup, we call it, uh, from our account, our official account at Real Talk RJ. In just a second, we want to get to uh, some follow up on a conversation we had yesterday. Would you move to the United States? Uh, would you move your family down there? If there was a great job opportunity, if you could double or triple your salary, 
Uh, and we're talking about the epidemic, uh, and I use the word intentionally, the epidemic of mass shootings in the United States. Would you move your family down there? John and I just started sort of waxing about it yesterday. Obviously, we wanted to address what had happened in Highland Park, Illinois, uh, that 4th of July parade. But, but I posted it on Twitter and just asked the question. I didn't do a poll or anything. But I asked people the questions and we had a whole bunch of people chiming in. I want to get to Mm -hmm. that in just a second. Before we do, if this is the time of year where you insist it is time that your family and your family's home realize its full potential, you're looking outside. You're so sick and tired of the rainfall. It continues. And that means that, uh, you know, the weeping tile that you don't yet have would have been helpful. Right. That sump pump that's not yet in the basement would have been nice. Maybe you're one of those folks that's spending this week. We feel bad for you. You're, you're ripping out drywall and getting rid of the carpet because the basement flooded again. You need work done. You know it. Maybe you need some new concrete board. You need excavation work. Maybe you need a retaining wall. Eden Landscaping does it all. When you think of Eden Landscaping, don't just think of water features. Don't just think of outdoor kitchens. They do that too. But whatever your vision, they will execute it with precise attention to detail. And you can check out all of their services online right now. Edible Garden Boxes, so hot right now. Of course, everything is guaranteed. This is the type of service that earns referrals. It earns return business. LandscapeEdmonton.ca is where you'll find Mike and his team at Eden Landscaping. Also, big shout out to our friends at Infinity Healthcare today. We, 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 we hear from you at talk at RyanJesperson.com. These are the messages that mean so much to us when you reach out. We told you about that email that we got from Eleanor a while ago. She said, because of Real Talk, she listens to Real Talk every day. She let us know. She says, because of Real Talk, I was able to refer Infinity Healthcare to my cousin. Their cousin required home care services. She wrote back in. She followed up with us. She said they're getting exactly what they need. And now our family can rest easy, knowing that our loved ones are getting a unique and personalized combination of premier care, the community-based services they need. Why choose Infinity Healthcare for your family's home care needs? Well, they provide exceptional moments. They bring back customer service to healthcare, and they take pride in providing an alternative to nursing home and hospital facilities. Your loved one wants to age in place? That's their wheelhouse. You can find them online at infinity-8.ca. That's Infinity Healthcare, a proud partner of Real Talk. So yesterday, you and I are talking about this Highland Park situation. It's, uh, again, unimaginable. Uh, you can't, you know, you see these social media videos posted. People are just taking in a parade uh, near Chicago. They're at a community that's typically a pretty chilled out community. Yeah. Crime statistics in Highland Park are relatively low. It's why a lot of people love living there. Even from afar, watching those videos of the crowd scattering, oh, man. It's, it's, it's horrific. And you can tell, it's especially like, because some people know, like, there's a marching band that's playing at the time when yeah. this gunman opens fire. And some Happiness, of them... Some of them keep marching. Others start fleeing. Yeah. There's people in the audience that are laughing because they don't, you don't know. You don't have context. Fireworks. You, you think be. it's fireworks. You think it's, you, you have no idea. And all of a sudden there's at least six people dead. There's, there's dozens of people injured. I mean, it's just a horrific situation. It got us talking. And, and, and again, let's keep in mind, to be fair, we opened the show today talking about a mass shooting in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. As Canadians, we don't look down our noses and say, oh, you know, we have it all figured out. Nothing happens here. It does. We've had people killed in houses of worship, mosques and synagogues. We've had families mowed down. I mean, obviously, hate crimes happen here. Mass shootings happen in Canada, but nowhere near uh, the prevalence and the pace 
that we see in the United States. I tweeted yesterday from my account at Ryan Jesperson with the epidemic of mass shootings across the U.S. Would you even consider moving and living down south? And we got dozens and dozens of comments. Kathy said that's a hard no. Uh, Alyssa, uh, listening in from Calgary, said, I won't even give Americans my money as a tourist. Said, I hated having to get health insurance for weekend trips. It was totally ridiculous. <laughs> Luke responded to us. He's happy in Canada. He said, I'll take minus 30. He said, yeah. he's, he's fine with the weather in Canada. I'll, I'll take minus 30. Spencer said, I went on a holiday to the States in September. I don't think I'll ever go back. Right. This is interesting. Kelly said she wouldn't go. She said her parents sold their condo in Phoenix. Kevin said not now not even to visit unfortunately jason went to university down in the states he said i loved my time there i wanted to stay after graduation but the last five or six years has really diminished any desire i had says the weather and some close friendships might make me consider it but the downside to living there has just become so much Avery says, I think I could live happily in California, Mm. but I have ample amounts of privilege that allow me to make that statement. Sure. Although, do I even want to get into this? Like, we talked about some of the comments people are making about Highland Park. This isn't supposed to happen in Highland Park. This doesn't happen in Highland Park. That's kind of a question of why. Because yeah. it's affluent? Because it's predominantly white? Is that why? Yeah. I mean, every mass shooter seems to be white, but I digress. Yeah, interesting comment from Avery there with privilege. Kate chimed in, and Kate says, I moved for more job opportunities post-COVID as Canada made it nearly impossible to survive in the sports industry. Kate is a talented broadcaster, Kate Patterson. She says, living down here in the States now, we have to think a lot more about where we're going and what we're doing. She went to Broadway last night. She says, I appreciate her sharing this. She says, I was thankful for metal detectors to get into the Broadway show last night. Like, that's where we're at now? We're thankful that, you know... There's metal detectors and that there's, you know, stringent screening when you go to like just to have a night of fun or recreation. It just it seems crazy to me. And my wife even said yesterday, she's like, when we got married, one of the exciting things because you're a dually is that, you know, maybe one day we can move to the States. She's always dreamed, you know, the Pacific Coast, obviously, Washington, Oregon, California, one of those states. And then she's like, I would never I would never even, you know, consider moving down there now. Hmm. Everything happening in the last Five, ten years. So my former boss chimed in. You remember Paul Menier, a longtime yeah, news anchor? Uh, Paul's such a beauty. Uh, he moved to New Brunswick and he's been made a great life there in New Brunswick. He's kind of slowed things down from six o'clock news anchor uh, to communications consultant. But he says, I always wanted to live in New York City. I mean, a lot of broadcasters have that. I think everyone has that dream, you know? right? Watching uh, movies. In broadcasting, and, for sure. Yeah. It's, you know, he says, I always wanted to live in New York City. He says, I, but I've had that same gut feeling, that, that same kind of queasy exploring San Diego, Seattle. Atlanta, Savannah, even Madison, Wisconsin, he says. The wrong place, the wrong time. He says, now I'm in a stunningly beautiful part of New Brunswick, and I'm happy with the journey. One of the comments... gorgeous. Oh, man, I've never... I'm embarrassed I've never been to the Maritimes. That's so embarrassing. Um, But but one of the comments, one of the things I wanted to to, to make uh, a point of mentioning was that, well, you know, I think there's 90 or 100 comments on this. We don't have time to read them all, but um, people were quick to clarify that it wasn't just... The prevalence of mass shootings that were prompting them to say this, right? People are talking about the Supreme Court rolling back Roe v. Wade. People are talking about some some of the political developments that they're seeing in the United States. I mean, people are talking about the return of Donald Trump. Who knows? In 2024, who knows what that's... I can't even believe that's coming out of my mouth. You're inside my... I mention her every show too much, but you're inside my wife's head right now. She Uh was just saying last night, like, what if in a few years Donald Trump is president and, and 
Pierre Poliev is prime minister at the oh same time. Like what? Because everyone's saying, you know, these things couldn't happen here, but like, you never know. I've got a buddy. They're building their casa and their casita <laughs> in uh, in a beautiful part of Costa Rica right now. Next and, to each other. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, they've got this like the little guest house. They're going to yeah. Airbnb it, and they're building their dream home down there. They're they're two of the people that actually did what everybody else says they should do. We should just sell everything and just leave and go to Costa Rica or go yeah. somewhere tropical. They did that, and they're building their dream place now. And I think I might just take out a long term rental on the casita if those two are holding the positions of elected office. Yeah, I have a friend who's who's a DJ. I won't mention his name. He's kind of like a private guy now, but he moved to Costa Rica right as the pandemic hit. Started yeah. day trading, bought a place. He's back here for a few months in the summer to pack up his stuff. But same thing. He said, with the way of the world, I just want to be a recluse. I want to be a hermit. Huh. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. It's a-, a beautiful dream. Ashley's on here in our live chat, says, I'm even considering not vacationing in the States. Like, you never know where you could be and get shot. Shirley says, I recall walking up the steps to the symphony. She was in Kansas City. There's two of them, right? Kansas City, Kansas and Kansas City, Missouri. Am I right? There is. Uh, She says, I was at the symphony in Kansas City. No knives or handguns. Read the sign. And Shirley says, we laughed. But who's laughing now? (laughs) No kidding, Shirley. I appreciate you sharing. You listen to everything. It's not like all bad. I was just saying like, oh, oh, no real talk is going to move to the United States. I'm never going to vacation in the United States. But I would be lying if I told you that it is honestly not in the back of my mind. It would be in the back of my mind all the time. I wouldn't be able to let my kid go to school. I'd be paranoid all the time. That's just me being real. Well, all the things you have to worry about already, your health and everything like this is just like stacking other things on top you have to think about this as well yeah i could perish from this huh (laughs) just a nice light thought as we wrap up our wednesday show i'm laughing because it's it's awkward it is it is awkward awkward to talk about this it gives me anxiety but we sign up for awkward conversations don't we you had no idea what you were getting into every wednesday our friends at tourism see this is what we'll do we'll talk about something heavy And then we'll talk about something that will allow us to have a few chuckles and remind us that it's not all bad. And by the way, if you're not spending your tourism dollars in the United States, why not take them to Jasper National Park every Wednesday? That's where we go. Courtesy of our friends at Tourism Jasper. We call it My Jasper Memories. Now, this is kind of counterintuitive. But whatever you do, don't come to Jasper. That's the warning anyway. Okay, there's a caveat here. There's an asterisk. That's the warning being hilariously spread by the Danish duo behind Jasper's newest theater experience. I think they just want to keep it all to themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Peter Van Loon and Joost Thiessen made the fatal flaw of visiting Jasper a few years ago. Uh, You know the story. They fell in love with the place, and now they call the mountain town home. And in their newest show, they explain why you shouldn't follow in their footsteps. Here's a, a brief snippet of these two. This is Peter and Yost. I think we all need that in life that we are truly listen to each other and truly see each other. I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's Peter Van Loon and Yost Deason from Jasper with Love. That's their production. Has just started showing to the public at the Lobstick Lodges Skyline Lounge. I love that lounge. If you haven't visited the Lobstick Lodge, this weekend's a great time to do it. It's a series of skits that purports to instruct the audience on how not to fall in love with Jasper. Yeah, good luck with that. You can expect great laughs, touching stories, theatrical surprises in this tasteful, energetic 
Theater Cocktail. It's a one-hour professional show. It includes local stories, wildlife, and, of course, the beauty of Jasper. It's the perfect night out for tourists who want to know more about this mountain town and also want to have a great time. The show is 25 bucks in July only, and then the ticket price, heads up, is going to double... So July is a great month to see it. It starts at 8 p.m. all summer long, runs Tuesdays through Saturdays. You can learn more about this dynamic duo in the next episode of Venture Beyond the Series. Uh, That video, we've been showing you some in past. You get to meet Jasper residents, uh, the people that make this town tick at jasper.travel slash venture beyond. And if you want to learn more about our partnership, you want to see past features, you want to immerse yourself in the stories of beautiful Jasper, Alberta, check out jasper.travel slash real talk. Of course, my Jasper memories is powered by tourism. Jasper. We want to see your photos, your Instagram videos, your Twitter posts, make sure you hashtag my Jasper and real talk RJ and your submissions, your videos or photos could be featured on a future episode right here on the show. Uh, we're going to wrap today. I can't believe time just flew. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we've got so much ground we're covering. That's because viewers, uh, because listeners, podcast subscribers like you are in touch with us, letting us know what you want to hear. We thank you for subscribing and liking our content, for sharing it, for ranking it, for rating it, for everything that you do to make sure that it's on the radar of Canadians, people across the country that are looking for real, meaningful talk on news, politics, and pop culture. Before we go, another reminder, and I'm going to be talking about this a lot through the month of July. The Real Talk Julie Rohr Scholarship applications are live. You go to ryanjesperson.com under connect and click on scholarship or just punch in ryanjesperson.com slash scholarship. Let the post-secondary student in your life know the application deadline is August 1st. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook Shivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Derlego. Human resources, Lena Shepard. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola. Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com. 